Hello and welcome to the Made Cast, the official podcast of the Museum of Art and Digital Entertainment, a series of lectures on video game history as part of the Made's ongoing effort to preserve history through teaching and displaying playable exhibits of rare games and consoles. While life in the time of COVID has forced us to close our doors, the support of people like you has allowed us to continue to bring history to you through lectures like the one you'll hear in a few minutes. I am Red. I'm Anthony. And I'm Chun. This week, Alex talks with Ron Gilbert, another of the original Lucasfilm game team, another one of the main minds behind the Manic Mansion, and a champion of adventure games. It has been a fun talk with Ron, and I really like his idea on, I really like his opinion on the current adventure games community. I really agree about him saying the community is not that. It's just the other part of the game community is changing. Like the player base has changed and and I can't agree more about his thought about the game de- developing co- companies before should be releasing more of, should be more generously releasing their source code so that it, they should be gen- more generously releasing their source code so that the titles which have no more market values can be archived by more people or organizations like us. And Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's one of the main things that The Maid does is uh, we try to preserve uh, all these older games and stuff for history. And uh, it's he, he brings up a great point when we talk about uh, preserving these games and releasing the source code because there's so many instances where games can just be lost and not uh, not saved. There's no more way for people to access them and to maintain them and keep them up to date. Um, it's kind of, I mean, we have it for movies and like old movies. They're being constantly like re-released and updated on like the new versions of the software, DVDs and Blu-rays and now just digital downloads. So it it should be more readily accessible because at a certain point, it's just like, it would be like a movie theater just showing a movie and then it's like, nope, you never get to see it again. It's like, we're not like, you don't get to, or like, we're going to take your, we're going to take your game back. <laughs> we're going to take your copy of the movie back. Yeah. Uh, you can't, uh, mess with it anymore uh yeah so thank you ron for continuing to talk about that yeah and we'll leave the rest for you to listen here goes the talk hey welcome back uh, i am here with the amazing ron gilbert thank you for joining us today ron hey thanks a lot uh, you really don't need much of an introduction since we've been talking and leading up to Maniac Mansion history for quite some time now. But uh, I was wondering if you could sort of set the stage. What was it like sitting in the room and brainstorming, say, with Chip and, and David and, and maybe anybody else to come to the point where you were going to build the first LucasArts real adventure game after Labyrinth here? What was sort of the impetus? What was the stage like? Well, I think the impetus was I didn't want to lose my job. I think that's the kind of the main thing that started everything was because when I started at Lucasfilm, I was just a contractor and I was working on uh, Corona's Rift, which was the game that Noah was working on. And my contract had come to an end and I didn't want to lose my job. I didn't want to not work there anymore. So I teamed up with Gary Winnick, who was an artist there, and he and I 
sat down and, and tried to come up with an idea for a new game that we could make together. Um, you know, the, and, and I think, you know, when we first started doing it, it wasn't really an adventure game. You know, we didn't quite know what it was. You know, we had a lot of jokes and, you know, Gary drew a lot of, you know, funny things and, but we didn't really know that it was an adventure game. And that, that kind of bothered me because I didn't actually know what the game was. You know, I know, I knew we had a lot of funny things and a lot of funny characters, but I didn't know what the game was. And it, it really kind of started out that I, I went off um, for Christmas break and I saw my cousin who was eight at the time and he was playing King's Quest. And I, I watched that and I went, oh, well, that is exactly what Maniac Mansion needs to be. It needs to be an adventure game. So I came back from that Christmas break and I sat down with Gary and I said, look, this has to be an adventure game. And so that's when we started designing the whole thing out to be, to be an adventure game was after that. And when was it that you decided to implement the sort of the technology that you became scum and, and Spoodum uh, with the interpretive bytecode? Well, I started to build the game just in straight 6502. You know, I was uh, coding up a lot of the game logic in 6502 assembly language, and that just very quickly became obvious I was never going to be able to complete this game, you know, coding the whole thing in 6502. And I I can't remember the exact impetus of it, but I remember I was talking to Chip Morningstar about it, and he was the one that suggested, hey, why don't you do uh, a little interpreter? And he, you know, whipped up the compiler and probably his lunch break knowing Chip. And that was kind of what I built everything on was that initial stuff that, that Chip had done. And, you know, at the time, I mean, people like, um, you know, Infocom and probably Sierra were all using byte interpreters, you know, for their for their stuff. So, I mean, just using a byte interpreter for an adventure game itself wasn't really novel. Um, but, you know, we had a we had a twist on the way that the verbs were represented. They were represented on the screen. There was no parser. So there was a lot of stuff about it that, you know, to me personally was very interesting. It's funny because Chip said to ask you where the actual uh, inspiration for that came from. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I very clearly remember talking to Chip, and I remember, and I very clearly remember Chip going, "You should just build an interpreter." And my first thought was, "Chip, you're absolutely crazy. That is not possible on a 6502." So I, I know the idea initially came from him. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. I mean, but this was also you were using that cross compiler, Macross, to compile a 6502 on Sun Machine. Right. Uh, Macross was really a lot of fun because it was kind of this weird blend between C and assembly language, and I, I mean, I really enjoyed it. And I think it was, you know, Chris had written the whole Macross uh, compiler, um, you know, so he had kind of done that first, and I think that really helped in you know jumpstarting the stuff because I think he had a, he had a lot of this uh, groundwork already laid. I feel like a lot of the success of, of your development processes in those early days was just down to having amazing development tools. Yeah, the development tools were really crazy. You know, when I first started programming on the, 65, or on the Commodore 64, you know, I was kind of pounding code out on the Commodore 64, and I was having to save it to a floppy disk on the Commodore 64 and all this stuff. And then when I got to Lucasfilm, I realized that they were compiling their 6502 
on Vax mainframes, you know? And so it's like, wow, that is like completely different than I'm used to. And so, yeah, I mean, a lot of the development, you know, we were all working on, on Vaxes and mainframes and Sun Microsystem computers, and they were doing all the compiling and the saving the code and, and all this stuff. And then it was just kind of downloaded to the 60, to the Commodore 64, you know, to run, but that, but our development system was actually these other machines. And that was just a huge time saver. And, and I keep harping on this in this podcast, but that's the kind of thing that people pay millions of dollars for their development process to go faster today, right? To have these fast iteration processes and faster compile times. Yeah, tools. I mean, when you're building games I mean, today, uh, especially so, I mean, tools are so important, right? If you have a good set of tools to, to make your game, you're just leaps and bounds ahead. And, and you know, at, at Lucasfilm, the tools we had were just amazing um, for the time. Do you remember any of that maybe inspiring some of your later work, maybe at Humongous or later on in life? Well, I, I mean, I definitely think the work that I did on the SCUM system and building that um, compiler and that interpreter, I mean, I'd always been interested in computer languages. You know, before I started Lucasfilm, I had uh, released a product called Graphics Basic, which was an expansion of the basic interpreter on the Commodore 64. So I'd always kind of had an interest in that. And I think, you know, building the scum stuff with chip really solidified that. And, you know, since then I've built many development systems. I've built many little scripting languages for games. And it's just something I've really, really kind of enjoyed. Uh, it's come so far since those times now. I mean, we have Unity and Unreal. I mean, it used to be that you would sit down and make your tools and then you would make your games, but now those tools seem to have solidified fairly well. Yeah, th yeah, things like Unreal and Unity and, and lots of stuff is, has really been great because you, you know, if you want to build a game, you don't need to know a lot of low-level um, you know, programming and understand how to deal with graphics cards and GPUs and all this stuff because you do have this nice tool set that 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 can go with it. But I think that's, I mean, that's just a part of the maturing of the industry. You know, people that make movies don't have to go out and build their own cameras anymore. So it's it's very you know analogous to that. Certainly, certainly. Uh, let's uh, if we can shift gears a little and talk about some of the things that took place after Maniac Mansion. Of course, everybody always wants to talk about Monkey Island and so forth. But are there any memories you have of those development processes? Any kind of limitations in the Scum engine that you had to make room for, or, or any difficult, uh, I don't know, ceilings that you butted up against? Well, we were always butting up against ceilings, right? That's, I think that's the nature of game development. You know, you're always trying to push the edge of something. And, you know, today it's, you know, the edge of 3D graphics. And, you know, back then it was, you know, it was 256 color VGA graphics, but it was an edge that we were pushing against. And, you know, the SCUM system kind of evolved from the Commodore 64 and it went to the IBM uh, PC and that was 16 color, you know, EGA graphics. And then we moved up to VGA um, when we started doing Monkey Island. And so that required a kind of a revamp of how things are working because now we had, uh, you know, a very different graphics we had to support. And then when we did Monkey Island 2, um, you know, Peter Chan and Stu Purcell, they did all those backgrounds on paper and then they were scanned in on a scanner. And then we used you know, literally Photoshop 1.0 to take those in and to massage them. But that 
that all had to still work on VGA graphics. So, you know, we did a lot of work. Eric Wilmunder and Brad Taylor did a lot of work you know, with compressing those images down so we could take these really beautiful scans that, you know, Peter Chand had done and we could get them on the VGA screen. Uh, but by that time, you'd had a lot of experience in squeezing every last bit out of the, the save medium. I mean, from Maniac Mansion on the C64 had to have used everything that thing was capable of. Yeah, I think that just comes with the territory, you know, of game game development. It's just squeezing everything you can, uh, you know, out of the hardware. Uh, it's become a little less so now. I feel like, though, I mean, you, you really you can just sort of make your game as large as possible. I mean, you do have to optimize it before you ship it, but you know, you can ship a gigs and gigs worth of games these days. You you can, but you still have to be somewhat careful. You know, it's like I, I kind of look at games I make today as like I have I have unlimited memory, right? Because you know everybody's got at least a couple of gig on their machine, and then with virtual paging, it's like it's virtually limitless. So I just don't worry about how much memory I have anymore. That doesn't matter. But the games got to run on mobile. And I do have to worry about memory on mobile, right? So there's kind of those things you have to worry about, or you have to worry about the console machines. Console machines are a little bit more limited in, in what you can do with them. You know, PCs, we're very used to being able to do anything we want at any time we want to. You get into consoles, and you can't really do that, you know? So, so there is still a lot of massaging that, that has to happen with that stuff. Uh, definitely. What what are you working on now? I've noticed on your blog you've been wrestling with a few things. Uh, I am I'm making another adventure game. We have we, we haven't announced it yet, um, so we're still kind of quiet on it. But I am doing another adventure game. Can you maybe contrast the development tool experience with uh, the Maniac Mansion experience? I mean, is it still sort of setting the stage and setting the triggers, or is it completely different now that you have these more advanced tools? Well, I think I think fundamentally it is. I mean, it's not really fair to compare Maniac Mansion because Maniac Mansion was, you know, Gary and I's first game that we'd ever made. So it was a complete mess from start to finish, right? Um, but I think if you look at something like, you know, uh, Monkey Island, which, you know, I had done Maniac Mansion, had done the Indiana Jones game, and David had done, you know, Zach McCracken. I think we had a lot more experience at that point. So... I mean, this is probably more akin to working on Monkey Island or Monkey Island 2, uh, you know, in terms of, you know, designing things and planning things out a little bit more. And, But, you know, I think with adventure games, you kind of always start with the setting. I think the setting is more important than anything. You know, Maniac Mansion, it was the house. You know, that was the setting. And for Monkey Island, it was this weird pirate world. And, you know, you start with the setting and then, you know, you build story on top of that and characters on top of that and then puzzles on top of that. And I don't think that has really changed much. Uh, another thing we've touched on on this podcast is sort of the, 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 the lull in adventure games, sort of around the 2000 period, adventure games sort of vanished a little bit, and then they sort of had to be reborn. Uh, I mean, is, that's a natural part of genres in the video game industry, but did, did you have any memories of sort of that period? Was there any disillusionment or anything? No, because at the point that, that the popularity of adventure games um it, you know, it's like, it's like people say adventure games died or adventure games went away or adventure games waned. And I don't believe that's actually true. I think adventure games always were just as popular as ever. It's, it's just that other games 
you know, like when Doom came out, their popularity went through the roof. And adventure games just didn't follow that trajectory. So I think a lot of people look at adventure games as, oh, you died and you went away. It's like, no, we didn't. We were still there. We were just eclipsed by all these other games who are now selling, you know, 10, 20 or 100 times, you know, what, what we were. And I think I think the reason adventure games have, have kind of come back in flavor a little bit is I think the audience has changed. You know, it's like it's like, you know, when things like Doom came out, you know, you had this very particular kind of hardcore audience and that and that really remained the predominant audience for games for quite a while. And then mobile came out and just totally changed who plays games. And that kind of audience is starting to creep its way into adventure games on, you know, platforms like PCs or, you know, like Thimbleweed Park, which I just got done doing. I mean, we've sold almost as many copies of that on, you know, iOS and Android as we have on PC. And I think that's where you really, you really kind of get this more mainstream, larger audience for narrative and adventure games. Certainly. And uh, the mobile devices and tablets, they just lend themselves perfectly to the old point-and-click adventure stories. Yeah. I mean, they were point-and-click with a mouse, and now you just do it with your finger. It just it makes a lot more sense. It, it does. Uh, I mean, some some of the other genres that have transferred to phone and mobile devices haven't necessarily made that jump as easily, like the, you know, the first-person shooters and so forth. It's kind of ironic. Yeah, the, I mean, the control mechanism uh, of, of touchscreens was perfect for point-and-click adventures. Yeah, I think it's why you see, you know, like Thimbleweed Park, we've sold more copies of Thimbleweed Park on Switch than any other platform. And I think that is that is because it has that touchscreen just built into it, and it's just a natural. Uh, there's also this sort of cozy movement in games, and I would say a lot of your games have that sort of cozy feel to them, I think, that it, it, it really... A place, uh, a feeling, a sort of uh, an enjoyable, safe sort of air of uh, excitement, as it were. Is is there some sort of way you would categorize that, or is that something you're aiming for? And I, I don't even know what I'm asking here. Well, I think that, you know, adventure games have always kind of felt to me like curling up in front of the fire with a good novel. You know, it's just, it, it's not this experience that gets your adrenaline going. It's just something you can sit, you can relax, and you can enjoy a wonderful conversation happening. And I think that's probably where you get that sense of cozy um, from. Absolutely. I think that hits it right on the head. You're very right. Even though there is peril, you know, especially in, say, the King's Quest series, which you mentioned, you know, it's not necessarily peril that just leaps out and grabs you. Yeah, but it's usually not, it's not peril that, you know, your Twitch reflexes are coming in to play. You know, you're not, you're not in peril because you can't, you know, jump left and jump right and do a double flip and, you know, all in the same time. It's, it's more in peril because you're kind of experiencing the story and you're kind of making decisions that may put you in or take you out of peril, but, but it is more of a relaxed decision making that, that you're doing. Uh, just to follow up on some of the previous podcasts, I wanted to ask what it was like working on Last Crusade, uh, the Indiana Jones. Uh, that was that was the first actual like Lucas property that you'd had your hands on, right? Yeah, it was. And you know, as, as you probably heard from David and other people, it's like we couldn't work on the Lucas stuff. You know, it's like we couldn't make a Star Wars game. 
And, you know, I think in the end that probably saved us, right? I think had we been able to make Star Wars games, that's probably all we ever would have made. And the fact that we couldn't make them meant that we had to go out and create things like Maniac Mansion and Loom and Monkey Island and, you know, all these other games. And, you know, Indiana Jones, if I remember that correctly, I mean, David and Noah might have a better recollection, but if I remember that correctly, it was they had licensed the game to someone else and then this other person fell through and wasn't going to finish it. it was, there was something weird. So we, you know, we had to make the game really, really fast because the movie was coming out. There wasn't a lot of time left. And then Steve Arnold, our boss, got Noah and David and I together and said, go make an adventure game. Uh, well, I've got a few minutes left here, and I wanted to talk about what you're doing these days. Uh, what are you playing these days? Oh, wow. What am I? You know, I'm I'm kind of I'm I'm playing nothing. You know, I was just I was chatting with a friend, and he was you know texting me about a bunch of games he's playing, some movies he's watching, and I, I sent him back and I said, "Where do you have the time to do any of this stuff?" Because I just don't. You know, I'm 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 working really hard on the game that I'm working on, and when I get done working on it, I just want to go sit on the couch and and watch brainless TV shows. So I I actually have not been doing a lot of gaming. I was I was playing a lot of World of Warcraft because they came out with a classic, you know, World of Warcraft classic. So I really got into that but when my game ramped up i just i had to stop doing that see that brings up a, a major point that we always got asked because of our habitat project which is how do you preserve an mmo and i'm you know we were very pleased to see blizzard do the classic you know version of that mmo but there's it, it begs the question what do you do with those games yeah, I, do, I don't know, right? Because it's not just a bunch of code on a single floppy disk, right? It's it's a whole bunch of code running on servers. And and yeah, I mean, it, it was really nice that Blizzard did that with the classic, you know? And I, and I think you kind of to their credit and also to the frustration, it's like they did really preserve it very much the classic game. It's like all of the all of the frustrating things that they solved in the Burning Crusade, just one patch farther along, they kept in classic. So you I think you really did get to experience um a lot of the frustration with that game. But yeah, how how do you preserve it? I don't know. I, I think they've sort of shown the way that in, in just institutional preservation of MMOs should be done. Uh, I, I think you're very right there, like preserving all the warts and all, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's 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 a tough problem, right? I have, you know, I have, I have a lot of sympathy for for people trying to do this, you know, because film, you know, we we, we can still show films that were made in you know 1914, right? The technology has not changed that much in how we you know, show that stuff, that there is going to become a point when the technology just doesn't exist anymore, you know, or or it's so, in the case of MMOs, it's just so dispersed and cobbled together from all sorts of things. There's there's just no way to replicate it anymore. Yeah, and that's uh, it's a, definitely a concern. But, uh, you know, hopefully, at least in small steps, we can preserve bits of it and you know, sure. the classic thing. Yeah, anyway. I think, you know, uh, companies probably need to be better about releasing source code, you know, for old games that have no, you know, real market value to them anymore. You know, preserving that, that source code with, you know, places that do that kind of stuff. I think companies just need to be better at that. Oh, absolutely. And that's that's like Frank's whole thing that they've, they've taken on over at the right, uh, yeah. History Foundation. So thank God for him. 
uh, Ron Gilbert, thank you so much for being with us today. Yeah, thank you. This is a lot of fun. All right. Thank you, Alex and Ron, for that wonderful conversation. Uh, we can't wait. Uh, we hope to have you back because uh, that would be fantastic to hear more from you and your upcoming upcoming ed- endeavors. Uh, we have, I know you're, re- uh, I saw an info that he was releasing a, he released a free game uh, last year during the lockdown called Dolores, a Thimbleweed Park uh, mini game. Uh, mini adventure, rather. Sorry. So he was the writer, directable, <laughs> directable, writer, uh, designer, and programmer for that, uh, working with Terrible Toy Box Incorporated. So everybody should give that a shot and support our guests and maintain a, a living legend, if you will. <laughs> but let's get into talking about some of the news as well. Um, Uh, sorry, guys. CD Projekt Red's back in the news. Uh, <laughs> it's always <there> you. you. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I can't help it. <laughs> I feel like I'm beating a dead horse, but I think someone actually just took advantage of them. And they hacked uh, them and their source code, uh, held them for ransom, locked them out of some, uh, locked them out of some of their systems. But uh, CD Projekt Red has released a statement that said they're not going to negotiate, uh, that they do have backups of their source code, which is very important and like what we've been talking about. Uh, so they're all like, and the hackers threatened to release their source code. But uh, this ties in kind of well with everything else that's been going on because if the source code's released, then yes, some people like will see how you do your work, which is your intellectual property. But it's it's also kind of renegade preservation, if you will. I'm not in support of anyone doing anything criminal or holding company and threatening the livelihoods of people that are just working the, working for a company that are trying to do anything else. So I don't support what they're doing. But one could call it <laughs> uh, renegade open sourcing. Um but it's not because they're holding it for ransom. So it seems to me there's a trend that more and more hackers are targeting game dev companies specifically because I think I heard of similar news last year about Capcom. They they yeah. was yes, the same exactly thing happened to them. Their stuff was stolen and their news was leaked. I I'm not sure how much their source code or game contents are are stolen, but I'm sure there some part of it gone yeah it's it's an unfortunate circumstance that keeps on happening uh (sighs) so also i think we need to also just talk about this i'm sorry to bring this up this will be the last i talk about this for the foreseeable future i promise i'll find another game to play Uh, (laughs) i mean it's it's uh, a fun game it's yeah, no, I mean it. It is very fun. Like, like I said, I enjoy it, but also I, I can talk about other things too, and I need to prove that. It's, <laughs> yeah. uh, I, uh, pre-orders are an issue right now, and like was the issue with, uh, excuse oh, no. me, like was the issue with CD Projekt Red, um, and Cyberpunk, and among many other disastrous games that were kind of hyped at launch, like hyped before launch, and then had a very terrible launch. Uh, no Man's Sky, for example, um, 
another game I love. Um, don't need to go into that. It's a great game now. Uh, <laughs> but pre-ordering games uh, lends itself to people purchasing content that is not complete and without you're, you're funding something that isn't quite complete yet, which I kind of help get. I like, I kind of understand, but game companies need to release uh, finished products. Like they need to, I, I don't think they're doing enough kind of play testing or anything to make a, an official release on many occasions. Um, and I think that's an issue that many people like struggle with and that it's hard to get over and justifying paying an early access to get all these things just to play a broken game upon release. Uh, yeah. So. so then can I ask you this red, what are your thoughts on Kickstarter games? That I think is like a different story because it's, it's not a giant production studio. Uh, like Kickstarter games. I, there are some issues because I did play mighty number no. nine from like the original developer, like one of the early Mega Man developers made a new kind of spiritual successor uh, to like an early Mega Man game. And it's, they also didn't have like the testing base, uh, which is an issue. Uh, there's a lot of things that were kind of upsetting with that. But I also feel like that's a little bit more of a gamble because there, there's not as much info dropping. They can like drop off the earth. I mean, it's just, it's a gamble, but it's also, if you believe in it, support it. Um, but if I, 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 I'm hesitant with those because some people, uh, take advantage of like Indiegogo and GoFundMe circumstances. And that's where I'm like hesitant yeah, I think. What do you think about like? I want to. Th I want to think what you guys hear about. Yeah, I think the main difference between Kickstarter and the big company pre-orders is only about how much the how much budget they have by the time they start developing. I mean, the Kickstarter indie company, the indie devs usually just they need that they need that bucket of money in order to make things to go on, mm -hmm. so that they can make the games to be pushed out. But for the pre-orders big big company, they they don't need that. They already have some amount of budget and capital for it goes mm -hmm. on, and their income will be from the from the sales of the game. It really depends on how good they can make it, and I think that's the main difference. That's why we probably don't like pre-order as much as Kickstarter, and why is Kickstarter more reasonable in my opinion. And I yes, think, um, like, yeah, and I think Nintendo is doing something about it because I, I was currently trying to pre-order the Monsanto Rise, and mm -hmm. unlike before, you paid at the point you pre-order. I, I think Nintendo actually told me that we are not charging you until it's two weeks before the game release. I think it has been a pretty good. It should have been a pretty good, like safety precaution for those kind of game delays yes i i definitely think that that's a a good safety mechanism you know like, yeah it 
prevent like don't we're not going to charge you we have your order ready and ready to go yeah but don't need to save the money and and i mean nowadays more of, more and more of us are just buying digital edition i think i of course i know package is important people and i know a, a lot of people like to have their package in the room but there's a huge player base change, switching to the digital too because it's it's just mm-hmm. more convenient. You can just play it right at the time it released. And it's not like we don't have enough packages version of it. It's not like that anymore because we have, it's digital. You pay and you get a game. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter how, how much they have. So I think... I mean, yeah. I, I'm, I'm still a... I still really enjoyed like the packaging of the games. And that's kind of one of the things that I think uh, some of these other games have done really well. Um, I mean... Like, like I loved reading the old manuals in the old games. I mean, they were they were their own art pieces, and like they really explained the game. My only uh, thing, and, like the mechanics. My only thing with packages is only really because of my lifestyle. I personally, I I have to move a lot. I have to. I've been constantly moving yes. to different places. But what no, happened to me point. is it's actually. Every single time I check, okay, how many packages, how many CD packages do I have? And I have to fill them in into more than one suitcase. And it's still not enough space for, for, for them to fit in. And that is the main reason why I have been switching from package to digital. It's just not happening for some of the people like me. Just... No, and that's a, that's a very valid point. I mean, yeah. it's like I've been moving recently more often than I have and yeah. I also agree that it's like oh yeah I have a lot of crap <laughs> yeah so I, I, need, I need to get I need to downsize uh, like I have a lot of stuff that is kind of yeah seemingly you don't want to throw any of them away <laughs> you just don't you don't do that it just yeah I know it feels I might have to bad. go back to using uh, my parents house as a storage unit um, yeah <laughs> we'll see uh, so Anthony I need to hear from you and what like what do you think about the pre-order situation? Yeah, pre-orders are, are very interesting. Um, back before when we had to purchase games from retailers, um, I believe pre-orders were mainly used to ensure that you had a copy of the game so that um, if, if the game sold out, you for sure had a copy because you pre-ordered it. Yeah, yeah but definitely. now in during today's times you know we can just instantly download games in an instant Mm -hmm. um and so the pre-order sort of loses its sort of value i guess you know um of course you know it comes with perks like oh you can play the game a few hours early than everyone else or you can get this really cool hat for your character that you that no one else can get um but to me, I mm-hmm. feel that isn't really much of a motive to pre-order a game, especially. Um, I, I feel a lot of um, a lot of studios, well, the way they advertise their game, it, it's it's not yeah. completely transparent. So I would say be hesitant to pre-order a game. Yeah, I agree. Be hesitant. Be hesitant, and some of these large companies don't necessarily need the need the encouragement to release a broken game. Um, hopefully that we'll see more complete releases in the future. 
Yeah, because it's it's happening way too often, and it's not fair to the consumer. No, it's not. And it, like, it's not a good. It's it's not a good look for the companies. It's not a good look for the industry at large either. Um, but I think it's. Um, I have faith, and also with people like Ron Gilbert and other now smaller indie independent developers, uh, they're taking things into their own hands and creating fantastic pieces of work. I think another reason for this kind of stuff keep happening is because of the the technical the skill gap between the top people of game development is. The gap between them with the beginners, like the fresh grad students, the, mm. it's very huge. So it they don't have enough people have to to have the enough skill to make things to come up in time. Yeah, that's what I heard about it. I think we need to do something to fill that gap in. But it's like it's like it has been a serious story. You you see you don't usually see that kind of delays happening in Japanese developing con- company because they have yeah. a very good education system that yeah. is from bottom to top and you just go inside and with everything you need educated and th- that's that's the reason you don't usually see delays from them. I, I be, that's what I truly believe and I think if somehow we can copy part of it in here, it'd be great. Definitely no. There's, uh, there's a lot of like uh, personal responsibility and respect involved with uh, just the Japanese education system, and I think that we could learn uh, a little bit from that as well. But I think that is unfortunately all we have for this week. Um, but I want to thank you again for listening. Thank you all for listening to the Museum of Art and Digital Entertainment's official podcast. If you've got any thoughts, questions, corrections, or general museum ideas, shoot us an email at info at the We'd like to send out a big thank you to everyone who donated recently and to our patron supporters who keep the mate afloat. Patreon donors get to listen to this podcast one week before its release on major streaming servers, and we'll continue that with future episodes every week. Till then, I'm Chen. I'm Red. And I'm Anthony. Thanks. We'll see you next time. See you next time. See you next time.